Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello, everybody. This is Dry Dock Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> no, too late in the evening for you. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bilge Pumps, episode twenty-two. I love um, the way he thinks I'm going to be editing that one out. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a shot. <laughs> we 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 are joined this week by uh, the regular the regular crew. So that's myself, Drakidafel. We have Doctor. Alexander Clark, aka AC underscore naval history, and of course JB from Armored Carriers. And we will be having a special guest on later on. Hopefully, fingers crossed, unless the curse we have with a certain gender of guest, there <laughs> does seem to be a curse going on every time we invite a certain gender on the show, something goes wrong. I'm not sure what it is, but we're currently five for five. It's um, just just different priorities, I think. It's, it's, it's why we get called, um, you know, a bunch of um, drips who spout ship. Mm-hmm. They, they have re- the, the thing is, though, they have genuine, really bad things come up. I'm starting to feel bad, like I shouldn't invite them because <laughs> genuinely very bad things happen to them. One of them, her. I think it was her grandma died. Come on. <laughs> Fair enough, yes. I'm did, 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 here, but it's out of sort of fear in a way. Did anyone actually, did, did, has anyone angered a, like a, an old witch? Or, did we get a curse put on bilge pumps at some point? Did we change our names? No, we didn't change our name. No, we didn't. Yeah. Not like the, the third HMAS Sydney. No. Renamed from uh, HMS Terrible. I mean that's just going to be a disaster in the in the making, isn't it? Oh, who did that? That's just terrible. That, that, that's just terrible. <laughs> oh, uh, um, all right. Anyway, today, today we are looking at well, until hopefully our guest arrives, we are talking about the SBS commandos. Well, the SBS gentlemen, uh, ladies and gents, or gents probably, um, who. Had a hang very on. interesting hang on, excursion. Hang on, hang on. It wasn't just them. Come on. There was also helicopters, the mine warfare people, the police, all sorts of things. It was a very interesting joint exercise. But the SBS, of course, get all the headlines because they yeah. like, although they tend to try and avoid them. And it was quite no, no, close no. to their base. <laughs> yeah, look, I think any wannabe. Um, Hijacker slash um, stowaway um, force would probably want to have a look at a map next time. Uh, well, it's, this is one of those interesting stories because the interesting story is that the fact that this ship was trying to put into France when it had the stowaways aboard, and they because they were causing trouble, the French wouldn't take them. So then they proceed up the English Channel. They tell the the Brits find out what's going on, and the Brits basically send out police first. When the police decide it's too dangerous. Just in case it is terrorism, not stowaways, you get the special boat service, who are the very interesting, very highly specialized Royal Marines, who like doing these sort of things and have been doing these sort of things since World War II. 
when they did a lot of fun things for using tent flotilla, the tent submarine flotilla out of Malta, and had a lot of fun with from them. Um, they lead the boarding from two. Mer there's two Merlin helicopters. There's two Lynx helicopters, which providing gunship support, presumably. Uh, there are some mine warfare people because the Royal Navy's mine clearance divers are also their bomb disposal people. Surprise, surprise. So when the SBS, uh, SBS go down, they also go with them to check the ship doesn't have any mines. And they do a very quick, very clean operation. Almost practiced. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, they... We've loosely touched on subjects of boarding in the past, um, uh, either joking about uh, bayonets or um, speculating about the use of um, robots or or um, exoskeletons. But um, I guess you know what is it? What does it take to conduct a boarding operation in a in a modern navy against a, a modern vessel? It's not fun. This is in this is this is the sort of we are, we can joke and laugh a bit about this operation because it did go so, so smoothly, it did go so quickly. They managed to, with no harm to the crew, no harm as as we understand to the stowaways, apprehend them, hand them off to the police, and get home very quickly. It was a textbook operation. But it was a textbook operation in that the stowaways were, whilst they could have been very dangerous, so they had to act as if they were very dangerous, because this could have been, if this had been literally been a hijacked ship, it would have been mm. a very, very dangerous thing to have a hijacked ship in those waters, uh, what it could have damaged, it could have wrought. But the fact is, if they had been terrorists, A, there probably would have been more than seven. B, they'd have been armed. And offering resistance, I well, they probably were offering angryness, but let's be honest, anger versus the kind of training and weaponry which the for British forces involved would have brought to bear is not really going to be much of a defence. And honestly, they were probably slightly shocked at the speed of how it came down because the helicopters did a very, very fast approach. They were. The straight repelling, I'm fairly sure it probably was Australian repelling, which is head first. Because that's mm. the fastest form of repelling to get down. Or they might have gone the traditional method because it was going onto a deck and that moves. Uh, and that's safer in that scenario. But there again, the, the SBS are very highly trained. So they were also probably thinking speed. And as we all know, when you're doing these sort of assaults, there's time on the rope coming down from the helicopter down to the deck is the most dangerous point. It's the point where you are most easily able to be predicted where you're going to be, most easily able to be engaged, so you try and get through that as quickly as possible. The whole scenario, once you're aboard, is then to break up into teams and to quickly secure the ship and try and secure the stowaways. I, I, have, to interject, been, uh, I have to interject at this, this, this point and express my um, disappointment at the lack of special boats. Mm -hmm. it, you can yes no. the special we, we, we boats would be lovely but let's be honest the special boats would have had to come with very special ladders 
Mm. And ladders are even lo- are even more difficult to get uh, to get up quickly than ropes are to get down quickly. But, but don't you have a rebuilt damaged astute for this sort of purpose? Uh, we have a very nice astute, which has a very nice. Um, in fact, quite a lot of our astutes can be uh, have the diving facilities fitted that has a little sort of submersible boat, which can be used for insertions of the gentlemen from uh, gentlemen and potentially futurely la- in future terms ladies of the SBS. Um, they do very well with those sort of things, and they do a, a lot of things. And I'm. I, I I probably am not letting off too much when I say that they um they are specialised in places which are would be cold enough to freeze off parts of your anatomy, um <laughs> as a whole for their regular their more normal visits. But so I, I, I suppose the excuse will have been that the channel's too shallow. And also, how long would it take to get the submarine down from wherever the submarine is to the channel? Whereas you have a helicopter which could literally come from Yeovilton pick you up on the way past and drop you off on the ship. I'm sorry, I'm just being a devil's advocate mm-hmm. here, but I'm just thinking that without the special boats, why not just use the SAS? They don't know their way around boats. <laughs> or ships. But I, I think the thing is, it's that there is, to be fair, a very big difference between this, which is a civilian vessel, and boarding a military vessel. Because one of the things you've got to remember is the great age of boarding outside of very very small ship actions like the mtb mgb versus e-boats in the channel in world war ii and the alt-mark or the alt-mark, which, which may is, or may not have involved swords yeah. and other sharp mm. pointy objects but which is may still or may a, not have been being yeah. carried but is still a civilian ship um yeah. as opposed to a warship but the the classic age of boarding in the age of sail the primary method of controlling the ship was on the on the main deck or maybe on the quarter deck. The primary method of propelling the ship was above the deck, and the ships themselves were basically, apart from the stern, basically large halls on multiple levels. So if you're boarding an age of sail ship, if you can take over the main deck and the quarter deck, you have control of the ship, because if necessary, you can cut the cut the mast, the rigging, you've got control of the wheel, You've got most of the senior officers and the few hatchways and access ladders that go deeper into the ship are very easy to cover. Even though the ship's on a first rate ship of the line, you might have 800 plus crew. Your boarding party only has to be 50 or 60 strong to have a very, very heavy cover of fire on anyone who tries to come up from the gun decks. And of course, you can throw grenades down and no gun crew is going to want to stand around very long on the gun deck of a ship of the line when explosives come rolling down the ladders. So it's much easier to get that kind of ship to surrender than it is to get something even as early as the ironclad era when once you get steam engines into play and iron ships, the propulsion is down deep in the ship, so you can't take that out easily. Whilst the bridges on the upper levels, there are emergency command and steering positions and it's more likely there'll be senior officers somewhere down deep in the ship and of course being iron and not open hatches or wooden hatches that can be stove in if necessary the crew can lock themselves down and yes you've got the main deck but that doesn't accomplish all that much actually um in terms of the ship's ability to function and it's a similar thing these days if you try and board a warship 
well, no one's going to be out on deck anyway, most likely, except for maybe on the helicopter deck. And if they shut all the bulkhead doors and lock everything, you're going to be spending an awful lot of time setting off demo charges to gradually blow your way through the ship. I mean, uh, just just thinking, uh, just trying to think of um, examples of warship versus warship boarding actions mm. in the past century. The only ones that come to mind would be the um, boarding parties on damaged submarines. You know, the mm. the attempt the attempts to get the logbooks. That's I, I I well, there's often talk about you know ships closing to potentially. Um, try and capture a damaged or sinking warship, they, they usually end up just torpedoing them or taking off survivors. But, um, you know, the, the actual... Are there any examples of warship versus warship boarding post-Age of Sail beyond the um, not Not while they're in active combat condition. I mean, the there's boarding of... unopposed boarding of a couple of the German destroyers at Narvik... But that's to take off survivors and loot stuff well after the ship is out of out of action. Um, there's the boarding and ransacking of the Polar before it gets put under at Matapan. But again, at there that point, again, the ship's out of action and the crew are out of action. And Nubian well. was actually trying, considering taking her in tow as well. Basically, mm. there were a lot of Matalots thinking that we could maybe get quite a bit of money for this if we take mm. it down the old Kent Road. You know, but we, is it- we, we could get a bit for this. But, but um, is, it, is it actually an upgrade? Would you swap your Nubian for the Polar? No, they were taking her in a surprise. They weren't planning <laughs> on swapping her. <laughs> the, the only reason Cunningham eventually decided to sink her was because he concluded that the reduction in speed would mean they'd be open to air attack the next day. And yeah. he basically had to order the tribal class destroyers to leave their, to leave their prize behind and have it sunk. He, he had to directly order them. He couldn't. He had to word an order which was completely wiggle room proof. There had to be no ability to actually disregard the order in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> um, but let's face it, though the the main incentive was probably gone by that point, um, with most of the um, captured Italian officers already being rolling drunk. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I'm just trying to think of. I mean, there were boarding actions in combat, but pretty much all the ones that I can think of from the First and Second World Wars involve MGBs and MTBs and e boats floating around in the channel. Mm. And at that point, it's not even a ship to ship boarding action because they're not ships. They're literally just. <laughs> That they're kind of ram, ramming together in the middle of vicious firefights, and somebody deciding that going over and punching the command, the opposite commander, hard enough to knock him over the side, is actually a more effective way of taking the the, the enemy craft out of combat they're, they're, than shooting it. They are basically the World War Two equivalent of the Nelson's patented bridge for taking ships. I, you know, I'm I've had to I've happened to bash into you. I might as well just go and bash you on the head. <laughs> Not even, not, not even the raiders um, had any. There wasn't any um, raid, raiders raiding the vessels being boarded, but there were plenty of raider support ships being boarded. So I guess the support ships were either so lightly crewed or crewed by civilians that mm. they didn't put up a resistance. I'm thinking of the tankers and the likes that were often yeah. captured. 
Well, a lot of uh, this is the thing. A lot of it, when it's it's either merchantmen or converted merchantmen, the crew know that the ship has basically next to no ability to resist shell fire, and the ship that's boarding them is pointing some fairly nasty guns at them. And when you're a merchant ship, even a four-inch gun is an existential threat. At which point, that you've got a choice of well, you can all be blown apart, set on fire, and left sink in the north atlantic or you can just stand by and let us be let us board you and we're uh, going to carefully avoid foreshadowing too much one particular incident that's sydney versus cormoran mm. because we are actually planning on doing a bilge pump special at some point in the future looking into that mm. and going full that report in full because we've all read the report and whilst we agree we none of us think there are conspiracy the conspiracy theories are right etc i have to say and i will keep emphasizing my question is uh, questions are not to do with the facts as sort of been reported or reported. I'm just not sure about the how what they described was must have been going on with the crew in the time between the fight and what was ha- and the sinking and also the stuff before it because there, there is are one distinct pro- areas of gray. There are distinct areas of gray, and also you're getting one side of a conversation. And this is what I I often find interesting. You're telling uh, we're being told what. The Germans said they signalled, and we're fair, let's believe them because we might as well get. They were right at our points in the story, so let's say they are 100% truthful on what they signalled. We don't understand, we don't know what the Sydney was seeing, though, because with all the difference, the, the flags being seen at range and at weird angles and all these sorts of things, they could have been, what the, they what they're interpreting the conversation as, etc. Could be different and. This is the trouble it, when you have only one side of a story. History is never one side of a story. And, In and fact, it could it's very, usually about several, about a bazillion sides of a story. <laughs> In this uh, in this instance, it could well have been you know, among the possibilities is the is the possibility that Sydney was attempting to board. Yeah. And why was would Sydney want to do that? Well, just a couple of days earlier, the Admiralty had issued an order to capture as many ships as possible because they'd been losing too many in the Battle of the Atlantic. Mm. So that was a motivator, a incentive, uh, something that's in the forefront of um, captain uh, the, the captain's mind in that scenario. Even though this captain, the captain of HMAS Sydney, had actually been um, either, he'd been involved. I'm not sure if he actually led it, but was basically very heavily involved in Australia's review of the. Um, the anti-radar actions involving the likes of, um, you know, the Cornwall and uh, so forth earlier. So he was one of the experts on raiding in on on dealing with surface raiders in the Royal Navy, in the the, the wider Royal Navy, sort of Royal Australian, Royal Canadian, the wider Royal Navy community, as we can sort of call it. He's one of the experts. He's one of the largest Mm. experts. He's one of the best people. And you, you get the thing of is you almost wonder if he's trying to bluff them in that he's trying to get close, pretending like he's being taken in from them so he can get close. And there's a sort of bluff bluff going on from both sides. And there's all sorts of potential options, which people don't really think about. They presume he was making a mistake and didn't know what he was doing. Whereas it's more likely with Royal Navy officers at the time and the way they were sort of promoted that he was trying to push his luck. Yeah. And it didn't anyway, go right. Well, that's a, a future. 
But the point is, is it's a boarding a, sh a ship is a dangerous scenario, whether it's from it helicopter, whether it's from ship, whether it's from, you know, dolphin. It's um, it's you're putting yourself at so much risk. Let's be honest. If they'd had, if the you could have been looking at, well, there's always the thing, the story of Black Hawk Down in Mogadishu. Well, you want to see something even worse. You have that scenario of the t uh, you're trying to board from helicopter. The terrorists or hijackers have RPGs, and at that range from the ship superstructure, there is a reason why, even in this scenario where they had strong suspicions that these people weren't armed, that they were not hijackers but stowaways. They have two gunships along with the two helicopters. So they have a lot of firepower already in the air, very close, watching those decks. Because if things and, can go wrong, they go very, very wrong in a scenario like that. I think that's yeah, that, that, that is the, that's the whole point, isn't it? And it's also you know I was being a bit I was being a bit, a bit facetious earlier when I was joking about why not use the SAS because he used helicopters, but you know the, as, as this whole point is that ships are very very different, very very specific challenges, and you've got to know what that pipe does, you've got to know what that lever does, you've got to know what that um, you know that um you know we all does so if, if, if you don't you don't know the risks that you're facing hmm. and these are very very specialist personnel even the mine clearance divers with them would have been very very specialist personnel and you have to think one of the things you have to think about is that obviously because of the market issues now because of all that sort of thing obviously the stairways were very sensible and didn't go on the deck or appear on the deck at all during the operation because you have to presume those gunships would not have waited around to see if something fired at the helicopters while they've been doing the drop. If they'd seen someone on the deck, hmm. it would have been because you've got a choice between something which possibly is a risk. You can let it go, but if you let it go, that could be a whole lot of dead people and a dead helicopter crashing into the ocean. Or you possibly shoot someone you shouldn't. Mm. That's not a uh, decision yeah. you want to be. You want the poor door gunner to be in, which in many parallels is, uh, which in many ways does parallel HMIS Sydney situation, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's it's that it's that uh, risk versus reward, and that the just how bad can things go? And you know, we, as had been previously demonstrated with other raider actions, they can go back pretty bad pretty quickly. Yeah. They can. So, they can go very bad. Um, we've just thinking of other hijacking scenarios. There's the uh, famous um, one in the Mediterranean in the 1980s. I can't think of the name of the ship. Um, the, the 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 liner. Either mm, can, can either it? of you remember that? Um, that was that was a. I think it was the um, PLO from memory but anyway if, if none of us can remember it then we better move on quickly <laughs> yes this is the thing you know sometimes there is so much history going around on our heads but we can't remember achille lauro ah october 7 1985 the italian achille lauro was you know seized by a plo force that 
uh, was using that came out. Um, yeah, I think it basically you know used a yacht to deceive their way to get to get on board. So um, I think that strung on for a very long time from memory because of the whole difficulty of seizing the ship. Um, you know, it, it's yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be talking about these sort of things in case we give people ideas because it looks very much as though a ship, a seized ship, is a very hard um, scenario to correct, shall we say. Well, let's be honest, the nicest way they've had ideas, the Somalian pirate system, all these things happening off West Africa, off West Africa, the stuff which goes on in Southeast Asia, especially the Straits of Singapore and in the South China Sea, there is piracy going on around the world as we speak, and there are hijackers, there are terrorists, all taking part in this. It, it, they know. There is nothing, how do I put it, there is nothing that is not understood of the scenario. Half the trouble with dealing with Somalian pirates wasn't just having ships in place to protect and try and intercept these skiffs, etc. But it was having the personnel in place who could actually take those ships back if they needed to be. Because the moment those ships got to port, that was when the problems really started. So you had to try and take that ship back while it was at sea. If you And you have to do it in a way which is going to get, try and save the crew's lives. And it is not an easy thing in any stretch of the imagination. No, it makes you wonder whether it would just be cheaper and easier to um, de deploy, you know, uh, defensive teams to the ships as they go through. But then again, I suppose you're talking dozens of ships per day. So you'd, you'd have to have well, a very uh, large force to do, that, to do that, even to put a handful of, um, you know, I'm, th I'm thinking of the equivalent of the um, uh, auxiliary gunners that would often go aboard the ships during World War II to provide the anti-aircraft guns. Well, we're not uh, we're not talking to, supposed to be scheduled to talk to her today, but at some point in the future, we are hopefully, if with the curse doesn't keep interfering, going to actually, and this is one of the people who we've tried to have on before, we are going to hopefully have Kate Jameson on in, in, in Bilge Pumps to talk about Trafalgar and legacy of Nelson, but also to talk about her maritime security experience because one of her job actually a civilian job. Her uh, job at the moment is when she's not a being a historian is arranging those security teams for ships. Right, so if is. anyone knows <laughs> what's going on, it's her. Yeah. And she has regular Twitter uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter um, debates, let's say. That's far better than the phrase I'm going to use. With people who are basically going, oh, we don't need these anymore. We can do it this way on that well. This is no longer a risk. And she's going, it is. It is a risk. And you mm -hmm. have to have, it's like with the ships, uh, with the crew aboard the uh, ship, which was uh, in the channel. I forget, I'm trying to remember its name at the moment. I keep forgetting its name. Anyway, We're having a good evening for forgetting ships' names, aren't we? Nave Andromeda. Ah, yes, the Nave Andromeda. That crew was it had gone to their safe room. They were in their safe room when the, right. the special forces arrived. And did their thing and the ship itself was actually not that far off the isle of wight I'm, I'm imagining that they don't have any controls in their safe room no i i <laughs> presume they don't 
because otherwise you'd need holes in your safe room. I think yes. they've got basic. I think they've got basic command and control. Mm-hmm. Well, they've probably got something, yes, but it, it, it's a case of is it going to be able to override the bridge and other things? Yeah. Oh, anyway, these are questions we can ask. Yeah. Okay. Um, if she's going, if she will answer them. <laughs> and by the way, if you think Drax being slightly quiet compared to normal, he, that's probably because he hasn't drunk enough iron brew yet. He has just come straight from this week's armchair admirals, which was on Taranto, which was very fun. I was watching it; it was lovely. But of course, Bill Trumps are going to be doing our own version of Taranto, so. You know, the, the, the poor guy's going to be tarantoed out by mm-hmm. November the 11th. <laughs> I'll probably at that point hopefully know enough about Taranto such that if you if I suddenly get sucked back through a vortex in time and stuck in a cockpit, I'll actually know what I'm doing. <laughs> How to fly the swordfish. Mm. Well, that's easy enough. But really, flying a swordfish is one of the more easier options that you can do. Which is what made it so appropriate for the mission. But yeah. that has... Um, I don't know, would the SBS find a use for a swordfish? Oh, I'm sure if you gave them one, they'd, they'd figure something out. They're pretty ingenious. All right, so... As you say, as you so often say yourself, the swordfish by the end of World War II is basically an early version of a helicopter. I'm sure they could figure something out for that. Especially when it's in a vertical dive. <laughs> or a vertical climb. In back in reverse. Oh, th- no one wants to put a swordfish into a vertical climb. But that's that what I mean. Sa- that just sounds like a recipe to be just sitting there for a well, long, long time. That that was um, according to Charles Lamb's book. Yeah. Uh, to war in a sword, into war in a string bag. That's what he did to um, take down possibly two Italian fighters that uh, were diving at him. He just tried to hang his swordfish off its prop and. Uh, Naturally, you know, it didn't it didn't go up, but it didn't go down as fast as it could have, and um, all of a sudden, two Italian aircraft flew into the sea. But uh, that's another story. <laughs> yes, Charles Lamb does have an interesting time in the swordfish, and I, I I think there were quite a lot of Italians at the end of World War Two who, after they decided to switch sides in World War Two, felt that frankly they had done enough time versus the swordfish. Yeah, I imagine so. There are only so many times you yeah. wanted to be taken down uh, by an aircraft which looks like it belongs in World War One. But my think the reason why my thinking went back to the Mediterranean was your prior mention of the SPS operating out of Malta. Yeah, um, I know very little about that. Can you maybe give me a bit of an overview? Actually, it was their first ever operation that the SPS ever did was from a U-class submarine of temp flotilla from Malta and they blew up a railway line in Italy in a tunnel and that was their first offer operation and that wasn't even the high point of the operation that was sinking a cruiser the submarine sinking a cruiser on the way home <laughs> so that was their first ever first ever operation I did a video about this on my channel and I, I really loved looking it up because the SBS got up to so many cool things in World War II, and they're basically designed from the get-go around this motto of by strength or by guile. No, 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 no. It's by uh, 
Guile, not... Oh, I'm, I, no, I mangled the thing, man. <laughs> I'm sure I mangled it. Okay, SBS motto. Yes. By strength and guile. By strength and guile, yeah. So I was right the first time, I think. <laughs> I just thought I was wrong. But no, they are... Um, that was 2003, yeah. They've changed... They're, that's their official... When their official motto came. But it was... It's, it's a pretty cool metal. And of course, um, the, ori- yeah. the original, although the original motto was not by strength, by guile. Right. Okay. So that's the original motto they had in World War Two at this time. So I was right. I did get, I got the right, the, the, like, I got their current one, but it wasn't their original one. Their original one is not by strength, by guile. And that was entirely how they were trained to operate. Small two man teams going in places and being very smart about how they worked. And of course, the Italians did. A very good job at um, similar operations as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Queen Elizabeth and was it Valiant? Queen Elizabeth and Valiant? The, the, what were the two Queen Elizabeth class that they um, put to the bottom of Alexandria? Yeah, Queen, well, Queen Elizabeth and Valiant, they didn't technically sink. Uh, they technically still had water beneath their keels. They were just significantly lower in the water than they had been. Um, yeah, it's 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 one of those weird things. It's like, at what point do you count it as sunk? Because they weren't operational, um, but they also were still technically afloat. <laughs> and I think you know, I, um, you know, it's 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 a matter of these people are so are so specialist. I remember remembering um, encountering an account encountering a story of um, an Italian submarine being sunk or captured uh, with several of its um, SBS equivalents on board. And that put back the mission against Alexandria Harbour by six months because they just didn't have enough of the um, properly skilled personnel. So how, how big is the SBS? Is it um, uh, a couple of hundred, is it? So is it two or three units of 60 men each, I think? Is, is that how it works? I have Roughly no is. idea. Mm-hmm. Rough, uh, let's put it this way they're never going to officially tell you how many there are but mm. I've heard that guesstimate go around a few times around the block so because I wouldn't again, be yeah. surprised if that's not far off but again they're never going to tell you how many there are actually it's like mm. they never tell you how many SAS they are or the third unit which is the special reconnaissance service which was stood up not that long ago, and they'll never tell you how many are in that either. Right. Yeah, fair enough. But um, yeah, it's to me this is uh, an example of you know the the value of uh, an elite service is only as um, you know it's only as applicable as for as long as it lasts, and uh, it takes a long time to train these people and. It, it's uh, next to impossible to replace them in the, the scale of a of a war. I mean, this is what happened with the fleet air arms, night trained pilots. We had a fleet air arm full of night trained pilots, 1939, um, which put up a fantastic job at Toronto. But by the middle of the war, half of those pilot, trained pilots were dead, if not more. And um, okay, admittedly, it was also difficult to get the Avenger to fly at night, but um, by the end of the war, night flying was not was not on the um, fleet air arms um, capability list. 
any longer? Uh, you see, there's. I have a sort of disagreement on that one because they do a lot of in squadron training and I don't I, I find night flying isn't being done if it doesn't have to be because it's very, very dangerous. And you have to remember if night flying has to be done, you have to do it and you do it. But if you don't have to do it, because especially at this time with the aids they have available, it's very dangerous. So if you kind of want, but you find a lot of the escort carriers especially the ones doing convoy escort are still doing night flying as a regular practice because they're doing the anti-submarine operation they're doing that 24 hours a day constantly so i would say and the night flying the carriers they are able to do it the ca the pilots are taught how to do it but again they don't want to do it they don't want to drop the floats in the water which put up the lights behind the car and all these things unless they have to because it does kind of highlight where the ship is at night and it's good to try and rest your crews if you can <laughs> it is good to try and rest them it's good to try and give them some time off if you can do it so if you don't have to do a night operation especially when you're doing high intensity day operations you don't do it it's a nice thing to have in the bag especially if you want to do long range strikes like you've got at the beginning of the war but by the end of the war you're fighting a very different naval air war than you're fighting at the beginning so why are you running those risks and again you have less well-trained pilots so they're going to that's even riskier to do it because they've had to be trained in wartime but they still are trained in night flying and they still have to do that as part of their carrier certification ops they have to do night landings so i think if they could have done it they just weren't doing it on right. that those things well, because they had and again, as I said, you don't in the scenario where they do have to do it in the convoy war versus the submarines, they are doing it and it's going on. Those things are flying 24 hours a day. And that's the thing which really causes the Americans some fun when looking at the British escort carriers, because they are in escort role operating 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. yeah, fair enough. OK, it's um, just, you know, I'm just thinking in terms of. Um, some of our other discussions um, in such a high risk job, which requires such specialist skill and preparation. Um, should it be, is it worth fast tracking your robot dog? Yes. So, you know, is it, is it worth, is it worth a situation where you can drop a couple of canisters at high speed on the deck of a ship um, holding these, um, you know, armed and uh, semi-sentient um, <laughs> robots to scout around and um, prepare the ground, I suppose, for your SBS to, to be dropped in behind them. I guess yeah. this is a question we could, we could, maybe we could get, maybe we should all buy shares in um, Boston Dynamics and then suggest it to Kate. <laughs> I think she's already got the shares. <laughs> <laughs> Kate's smart. Um, it's it's one of those scenarios you are looking at it's the it's the holy grail because those those personnel are very difficult to train they are very selected program they go through they have to be that's a long training and there is a reason for this because what you're sending them into is a very very difficult scenario you are sending them into the scenario which most people do not want to go there I remember once there was a figure quoted to me, which was 7% of police officers in this was for New York City um, have to use their gun in the job of their, in their in, in their career. 
of those 7% of that 7% will actually take a life. You're dealing with the percent when you're talking about the people like the SBS, those special forces, they are the group who are going to not only most likely have to take a life, they're going to have to do it on multiple occasions because of the scenarios they're going to be sent into. They will try and avoid it if they're on a reconnaissance mission and if they can. They will try and avoid it in many of their operations because actually taking a life reveals you were there and that's the whole point is to not reveal you were there. But in scenarios like this scenario where they're being sent into a ship, the odds are we are learning about this one because it happened very close to the UK and honestly it's been in the news a lot. But how many other ships have they boarded further out to sea or in other places in the world which you will never hear about because that operation was dealt with and the problem was dealt with and it went away and no media ever told because again the other interesting thing about the SBS and the reason this story has perhaps caught so much attention is unlike their air service uh, brothers of the the army's special air service they do not engage in much publicity. There are the, the curse of the Royal Navy being the silent service. They are very much the silent special force. And I'm trying to think of any of the I'm trying to list in my head the names of SAS versus SBS people who have published books after their service. And I've got about one SBS man. I might be wrong. And I can think of about two to three dozen SAS, and I don't that, think that they're does, that much bigger. That does sort of indicate a rather dramatic difference in culture as well. Well, the SAS's motto is "Who dares wins." That is, uh, you know, and the SBS's is slightly different. It, it's a, it's a different, and it has to be in a way a different emphasis because you have to think about the different operating scenarios. One is going into a very technical environment by default. If they're operating in sea or the maritime environment, it's going to be very, very technical. And honestly, if you're on a ship, do you want to start shooting around things if you can avoid it? No, there are lots of things you could damage and could cause you a lot of trouble. Whereas if you're talking about the SAS, who culture starts up with raiding air enemy air bases where they are going to be surrounded and they shoot anything, they're probably shooting the enemy. Well, that creates a different, that starts off with a different culture. And there is, no, I want to emphasize this, we're not saying either culture is better or anything like that. It's a different culture because they're, they're different, and that sort of the different roles that they have at the beginning, this breeds a different culture, which still to an extent exists in the modern services. Yes, they have, their roles have sort of coalesced a bit and come together a bit, and their style of operation, their equipment, all these things have sort of merged a bit. But they still have quite distinct areas and quite distinct mission sets in some respects. And this, and they, the culture doesn't die. The culture gets rebuilt and renewed because the culture is part of what it is to be them. It's part of what makes them elite. It's, it's by design. Mm. And, uh, you know, I guess it, um, a bit of publicity every now and again isn't that bad. Yeah. It, might, it might help with a bit of funding with the uh, next round of budget cuts. 
Um, special forces tend to do okay in the budget cut uh, in the budget cuts in Britain. I, is that I, I because they, is, is that because they just sort of roll out those abs for the um, PR sessions with the uh, ministers, or is it, um, uh, or is it, or is it just a purely an effect of the uh, of, of Hollywood? I suspect it's probably, and obviously there's no way to prove this, but I rather suspect it's probably something along the lines of someone relatively high ranking in one of the the special services walks up to the prime minister or the defense minister or the chancellor with a, a small dossier and just says right well here are all the times somebody tried to kill you here are all the times <laughs> we killed them first are you sure you want to take our money away no oh, didn't think so that was a very nice conversation <laughs> um, uh, yes, I, I, I doubt they're so unsubtle but um yeah they can probably uh, distress that one there's probably um, more tea and biscuits involved tea biscuits <laughs> maybe some uh, may, uh, maybe some very nice pastries mm. what about iron brew oh if there's no iron brew then don't give that come. to a politician we have standards <laughs> <laughs> you might give them whiskey not iron brew <clears throat> Yeah, save the real stuff for people who actually have a proper job. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a nice tight point to wind up the discussion. So next week it will be. Ooh, next week we have the Roman Navy. I'm not sure how long we've recorded though. Is this is this the British Roman Navy? No, this is the Roman Navy of the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. And we have joining us, and I'm just going to make sure I get his surname right, because I if I get it wrong after chatting and t telling him he's coming on, and he's actually, the thing is, he and I both studied under Andrew Lambert, and we didn't actually meet till we were on the set of Mysteries of the Deep, and were chatting away to each other and went, we should really have... You went to their den and I went there then. And it was one of those scenarios where you realize you have been circulating around in the same groups for about the last decade and have managed to not run each other into each other. We are, he's Dr. Simon Elliott and you couldn't have anyone better to discuss the Roman Navy. And at some point we will also be having in the future a young lady called Louise Clare. Now, I have to say I'm biased when I say she's one of the best historians out there. And I admit I'm biased, but I'm, I, that doesn't make me wrong because she is. She is a specialist in the Falklands War and the information war which goes on around that and the whole media battles. And at some point she's going to be on with us, curse allowing. So, so she, should be able to, she should be able to answer uh, once and for all whether or not uh, HMS uh, Invincible was sunk or not. Oh, mm -hmm. she well, she will be able to clear that up. If Steve George, who was actually aboard HMS Invincible, didn't manage to clear that up, was in Petic, no, emphatic, no, she will definitely be able to clear that up. In that fact, that's one of her favourite stories to start talking about and go, this is where it comes from and this is where it goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, looking forward to that. Okay. And also, myself being a regular target of such uh, misinformation operations, I'll be interested to hear her perspectives. Oh, I have, an, uh, I have no doubt that between you and Drac, you will be chatting away non-stop to her 
and I will be uh, uh, just sort of sitting there watching back and go, just enjoying the show. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, until then, thank you. All right. Thank you. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. So, we decided this was just a little bit short, so we have added on a little bit extra, and hope you enjoy part two. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Probably want some, some sleep. <laughs> Sleep? Yes. Why do you want sleep? That's all right. Hel- all right. I suppose my turn. Hello and welcome to episode 20. Oh, my Lord Lubber Duck. Hang on, hang on. Stop. 20. Cut. This is our reserve one. So, okay. We're not, we're not actually going to be mentioning any numbers on this one. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Sorry. That was just fun. Uh, okay. So I just have to add that in if this does become episode 20. Yes. Okay. Hello. Hello and welcome to Bilge Pumps, a sort of special one in that we are going to be experimenting with an idea we mentioned earlier in the series of the hybrid super battleship, which I'm going to hand over to our esteemed colleague Drac in a second to explain it. And then Jamie is probably going to start ribbing. But I'm, of course, Dr. Alex Clark. And I'm going to start off with my first thing in that if uh, the U.S. builds one, I want it to be called the USS Lonnie Johnson. Before any of you ask who it is, that is the inventor of the Super Soaker. And if anyone deserves to have a modern hybrid super battleship named after them, it has got to be the inventor of the Super Soaker who and the Nerf gun who has brought me so much fun throughout my life and has allowed me to do lots of training of experience with my students in that Arming them with super soakers and Nerf guns is a very safe alternative to anything else when I want to teach them, at, uh, give them some actual experience. So, passing over to Drag. Right. So this is kind of building building on uh, a thought process that started in our, our latest episode on China. Because the hybrid battleship, we'll talk a little bit about it historically. Um, historically everyone kind of had they were thinking about this idea both in cruiser terms and battleship terms of a hybrid warship that could conduct its own recon and strike and fleet air defense etc whilst also engaging in the battle line because it would still have armor and big guns and so i suppose the attraction was yes it might be slightly more expensive to build one but we only have to build one as opposed to having to pay for a separate battleship and a separate aircraft carrier which always pleases finance departments it didn't really work out in the era of of guns um in the early 20 early half of the 20th century um and there's a fair number of good reasons for that i mean the fact is simply it does neither job particularly well um a hybrid a hybrid battleship almost always with the exception of maybe one or two of the rather interesting french concepts is going to have less firepower than its equivalent 
um, battleship, so it's going to lose in a straight-up gunline fight. And it's also going to have significantly fewer aircraft than its equivalent fleet carrier, so it's going to lose in a straight-up air fight. About the only scenario where it could potentially have any kind of success would be if it's able to carry sufficient strike aircraft for that to tip the balance in a gunfight. But then do you really want to be conducting air operations whilst you're under fire? Um, not really. And if you're launching your aircraft soon enough to go in and hit the enemy and hope that your small air group won't get overwhelmed by anti-aircraft defences, and then you're moving in to effectively finish them off, well, then you could have done that with a carrier Any in, in any case. The only, the only kind of... Um, scenario and i know i've said this a few times on my channel where a hybrid battleship in those circumstances makes any kind of sense is in the case of when you're using your battleships primarily for fleet defense and not in an attack role because you can then have uh let's say you look at something like the isei hybrids you have a ship that can do fleet defense with eight 14 inch guns in terms of, of, of a gunfight so it can see off enemy cruisers it can see off to a certain degree battleships and because it's operating with a fleet that has carrier elements in it they can probably make up for the if you come under battleship attack for the fact that you might be slightly outgunned on a ship to ship basis and from the air attack perspective it's got smaller flight deck anyway so you don't want to be putting stri heavy strike aircraft and large strike aircraft on it you may want maybe you want to put lightweight fighters in the Japanese case, obviously zeros, at which point you could probably contribute a meaningful amount to fleet defense, whether you just increase your level of cap or you now use your hybrid battleships as the providers of cap and therefore allow your actual carriers to carry more strike aircraft for a heavier hitting power. But that always comes with a big caveat that if you're in a position where you need to supplement or provide your combat air patrol from a hybrid battleship instead of just another carrier you're probably in a situation where you've got a lot bigger problems than actually having a hybrid battleship because it means you're fighting somebody who's bringing a lot more aircraft and battleship strike power to the table so effectively the hybrid battleship at that point is a, a way of trying to address a problem that is far larger than it can actually solve um so the thing is though the idea comes about that with modern scenarios with hmm. the idea of having i think when we were just walking about this we talked about a 24 inch gun on the mm -hmm. electromagnetic sort of rail gun system um mm -hmm. having i think i was talking about at least two double if not two triple turrets on the front uh, to fire these and these would be firing sort of cruise missile style munitions but using the email system to launch them and then it would have a drac painted battle stars uh, galactica style launch tubes mm -hmm. on the rear to launch aircraft for, directly from the hangar but have a drones. landing on uh, uh, drones that is they mm -hmm. must be drones they're uh, unfortunately squidgy organic bits do not enjoy the accelerations quite as much as humans do um have a landing on space and mm. also probably have significant space for missiles as well somewhere on the hull probably if using a mark 53 style system where they launch out of the sides of the you know the radar reflecting type 45 zoom disc hull shape so they launch out the side of there and 
this would be sort of the modern hybrid. And the whole point of Bill Trump's is, well, Jamie's already looking at me going, I'm going to enjoy trying to rip this apart. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm going to start off by saying that if we are going to do this, I'm going to A, name check two of my very, very good people on um, on the Discord server, which is run as part of my uh, my my channel, um, Gazberg and ICDeadman666, who were having a lovely chat at the same time as we were recording this, and Gazberg point, uh, has put out quite quite nicely, nope, Asipods are the currently turboelectric drive, i.e. you have generators which are spun by either diesels or gas turbines. They dump their electrical output from the power grid and then each Asipod fed from the grid. Going with AC Naval History's patented low crew high redundancy theory, we can have uniform diesel pools so that some of them can be disassembled without much or any performance loss. And you could also harmonize the Asipods to cancel out the screw noise. So I think that sells the powertrain power for our super battleships, our new modern emails, you know, high-tech hybrid aircraft carrier battleships or drone noughts or what are we going to call them? Come on, Jamie, you're the one who comes up with the cool names. <laughs> what is it with you British and these hybrid things? Um, look, we like hybrid <laughs> cars. We like hybrid houses. You know, we like hybrid. I, I'm just looking at this minute by the director of Air Materiel, dated the 17th of October, 1940. Sounds a good year. Ah, good vintage. They, it's, it started off more than a year's worth of discussion over what they... Iron Crew was only 39 years young then. <laughs> started off more than a year's worth of discussion over what they called a battle carrier. Yeah. So I guess that answers your question as what we should call them. Oh, because battle the, pres the, precedent's been, the precedent has been set. So, OK, you know, the, the, the discussion starts out fair enough. You know, the Royal Navy was struggling to find sufficient fighter cover for the fleet. Yep. Great. The fleet feels a need for fighter protection, a need which they feel, do not feel can entirely be satisfied by either carrier borne or shore based aircraft. Inevitably, therefore, inevitably, mind you, one is tempted to return to the idea of the carrier battleship or cruiser carrier. I don't see how one follows the other to, there, to be honest. But, well, um, I'd say it's because you've got cruisers and battleships already in shipyards under production. It's probably easier to turn them into a hybrid than it is to either break, uh, start, to start again or mm. to just cancel them and, uh, you know, or do a full up conversion. Mm. And at that, at that point, they've got the experience with both part and full conversions um, yeah. from obviously all the all the early interwar carriers. That curious, courageous, glorious, those lovely free sisters. So well, it, you know, I, I, I personally would have thought the independence class was the obvious outcome here. But um, I don't know. Maybe hmm. maybe I just don't uh, think British enough. <laughs> well, I think the thing, <laughs> the thing is, the funny thing is actually in the um, in the dry dock that I've uh, at the time of this recording is about to go live in a couple of days. I actually pretty much zoned, zoned in on the independence class as the perfect commerce raiding carrier in terms of its balance of speed protection and air group. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, the thing is that with the, the hybrids, there's, it, it's the desire, both the desire to preserve surface striking power because 
as much as the Royal Navy needed fighters, it also needed, as as we know, as many guns as it could point at the enemy. Um, but also, and you see this as well for the reason the, the reason that the um, Lexingtons had those eight, twin eight inch guns, um, and for the, and you had like Ranger almost had triple eight inch turrets forward, and there was even a lot of fight about giving the Yorktowns eight inch guns. Basically, even, a lot even, of American even, even the midway class, yeah. Yeah. yeah, midway they, class was, was early versions of that had the uh, eight inches as well. Yeah. So. so they they were they were still constantly worried about a air power not being enough to stop incoming hostiles, um, but b also it's it's down to also the uses because a lot of the American carrier doctrine around the mid to late thirties was talking about using carriers as effectively the the new equivalent of the fast cruiser squadron or the frigate squadron depending on how far back you want to go of going in hitting the enemy supply lines um maybe some enemy bases and and getting back out again at which point running into enemy cruiser groups was a serious concern um and obviously in the era before radar the first thing you might know about is when they come barreling over the horizon which means they're already in gun range so having the ability of the, for the carrier to fight back made but, certain I, sense, but because obviously they weren't going to be able know, to run o- away. October 1940, you know, they've mm. had, you know, a decent amount of time there to discover that radar works. Mm. Um, and they've also had the 1930s worth of, um, you know, uh, intense mm. war games and carrier operations, real world carrier operations, not necessarily combat, but, you know, uh, on the front line, not on the front line, but they've also at sea. lost ships. Yeah, they've also seen glorious go down. Mm, <laughs> I yes, can bet so you there would have there would have been a there would have been a few people back in back in various naval headquarters, both in the Royal Navy and U.S. Navy, going. But if glorious had had a battery of eight-inch <laughs> guns, but you just uh, listen to the optimism. No, listen, she, didn't she originally have fifteen-inch guns? Yeah, they would have loved to have kept those. <laughs> they, well, they, they did, battery, didn't they? They, they used them on the. Have, yeah, it, it, they'd have said if Glorious had had her 15-inch guns, Sean Horse and Nizana would be at the bottom right now. <laughs> or someone, someone wishing for the uh, original, original format Furious to come back because you see if, that, if they'd had that, they could have just run away and kept firing its, its single rear 18-inch gun and speculatively hoping that like the the one time it might actually hit something, everything will just go. Kaboom in the spectacular match. With Sharnos and Nisenau, if an 18 inch shell did hit them in mm. anywhere remotely critical, there wouldn't be much of them left. Try to hit something exactly with a single 18 inch gun, on the other hand. <laughs> the, the two of you would certainly uh, are, are most definitely in the camp of the uh, 1940 Director of Air Material. And here's his optimistic outlook. He says, given the attached sketch plan, it would appear possible to superimpose on the King George V class or a similar heavy, heavy ship without, it would seem, impairing the efficiency of the heavy armament. A short landing on deck of similar characters, a short landing on deck of similar characteristics to the illustrious class, an assisted takeoff gear, and hangar for 18 fleet fighters of our latest project design would be feasible. <laughs> the idea was to take the, our last two of the King George for class, which are still being built not fit them with a double turret and leave the two quadruple turrets from memory and put a landing deck in the middle and stick their command structure in an island on the starboard side. The idea was literally leave them as a battleship from the 
decker the basically the first level of guns down and how fitting well, aircraft carry in above that so it's about building something in time and getting it out to sea these are things which are available which yeah. they can complete well the, the, this sketch design mm. and, and, I, and the one that you mentioned there i have seen mm. but this sketch design looks much more to be a vanguard or hood because it's got four by the looks of it with basically a condensed illustrious class plonked in between b and x turret well that could have been their plan for converting hood that's another modification we could talk about <coughs> you know the idea <laughs> well, of turning the, the, could hood have been turned into an aircraft carrier oh well, I, they think do, I, I found they, it i found they, the they did yeah so they, they did look at yes yes so they, they did look at converting the jean bart mm -hmm. uh that happened in 1941 where they considered um turning that into a battle carrier mm. you know the, the 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 idea of the battle carrier just would not die and the optimism surrounding them just seemed to be impervious to the conflicting requirements of operating aircraft and firing a big gun while staying above the waterline. I think, Jean, yeah. the, of, of, as I said, the, the, the Jean Bar one is probably the closest to viable, in my opinion, because it's already built with an all forward armament. So you're not massively impinging on its ability to actually engage in a gunnery duel at that point you are having a massive vulnerable carrier deck on the back but and i'm not definitely not saying it's perfect but it's 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 the closest to to, to practical because of the the other thing is it also means if if the flight deck starts behind the the last super firing turret the second the second turret then you're not compromising the ship's ability to fire its salvos on any on most of the arcs that it was already going to whereas one of the bigger problems with any kind of hybrid which retains an aft turret of some description is that one you need to go broadside rather than head on which a Richelieu can um, and two one if you've got this like in between flight deck you're now going to suffer potentially quite serious blast issues once though once though that turret comes past say about 90 degrees um, if you can imagine it, like if you're having to engage an enemy that's off your port bow, you're having to slew that rear turret round to fire 30 to 45 degrees off of the forward line, you're going to be doing an awful lot of interesting blast damage to the hangar, the flight deck, and anything that's unfortunate enough to be on it. Yeah, well, that's why this uh, you know, the proposed design has, mm. as I say, basically an illustrious sitting on top. Yeah, a battleship hull to get it up, um, out of the way. Now, mm. ugh, if they wanted an armoured hangar for that, just imagine the top weight problems. <laughs> You'd have oh, to bulge it so strong. much it would go back down to World War One era battleships. <laughs> <laughs> Either that would make it so so long and pack it full of so much engines, you might as well just fit a bronze ram bow on the front as well. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. so that's so that's the situation. So that's the situation in 1941. Um, yes. Now, your argument was taking into account um, some fairly significant changes in technology since then. Yes. So my, my my argument goes along the lines of you need a one of the, the one of the biggest flaws with the 
World War One, World War Two era uh, hybrid battleships is that manned aircraft, whether they be prop aircraft, jet aircraft, etc., they need a fairly substantial um, ru uh, runway or flight deck to get up to a speed where they can take off and to decelerate once they're landing without the pilot just turning into strawberry jam on the inside of the cockpit. Um, well, we should, Jack, we should be careful because you and I are getting into trouble when we get into the cream tea comparisons. I've seen the comments under that, mm -hmm. uh, under that YouTube video we did. Yeah, let, let's not launch the scone class fighter. <laughs> uh, no. But the... Uh, the uh, with modern technology, if you're able to talk about drones, drones are only limited to the G-Shock ratings of their components, which are, of course, plastic and metal and various forms of electronics, which can be hardened to significantly greater capabilities and capacities than you can get uh, from out of a human. So, in theory, you can launch a drone with significantly more acceleration, and you can also stop a drone significantly faster as long as the rest of your systems your rest of wires or whatever are capable of managing it so your theoretical drone fighter or strike craft doesn't need that massive flight deck to take off and land um, and again being a relatively compact automated um, aircraft you also don't need the kind of um, lifts that you need for a manned aircraft because obviously the aircraft are quite large uh, people don't react too well to say being tilted up 90 degrees like you're going up oblivion at alton towers um so whereas a drone is not really going to worry too much even if you strap it onto what looks like a glorified bike chain and ratchet it up the outside of the hull it doesn't care whether it's at 90 degrees 120 degrees or horizontal um so your your lifts can be smaller um they can and obviously more compact there therefore you can get more aircraft onto deck faster so the fact that you've reduced flight deck is also reducing your deck park doesn't necessarily have so much of an impact as it might otherwise do <clears throat> and with all of that you could in theory then get a a, a flight deck and hangar capable of operating a substantial amount of drones i mean you'll still be using a fairly large hull but a, a substantial number of drones could be fitted but not use up all of the hull real estate. And the idea went that, or the idea goes that if you have developed your, presumably your emails technology, because then you could just have a nice big reactor or, or power plant of some description deep in the hull to provide all the energy. Um, if your technology is advanced enough that you can pull that aspect of it off, then you've also effectively invented a big rail gun. Um, and, one of the other issues that we were discussing in terms of aircraft versus missiles in term, uh, cruise missiles in terms of strike power is that you're talking about sort of 20, 30 percent of the weight of a missile is effectively useless in terms of striking or range because you just need that as the booster to get the thing airborne, which limits the number of missiles you can carry. I mean, if you can eliminate the booster, then you can get four, even if nothing else changes about that missile. You can now have four missiles for the same weight and dimensions as previously. You'd have only three. So 25% increase in your overall firepower. And if you've got this theoretical large railgun technology effectively lying around, then what you could do is come up with a, a cruise missile 
type which doesn't have a booster and maybe doesn't even need quite as much fuel because if you can put uh, put that railgun technology to use in a gigantic uh, barrel and we use the example of a tomahawk missiles just over 20 inches diameter um, we could go as dr clark said 24 inches to count for some larger missiles you can literally just take a cruise missile um hope make obviously you've got to make sure your fuel system is is durable and shockproof but again it's a mechanical device not human um and then you can just fire that missile skywards now you're not going to be using that missile as a shell it's not a, like a guided shell but what you're doing is all the energy requirements that you'd normally have in your booster uh, section are being provided by the ship by this um massive rail gun which means the missile now it ha enjoys all the same advantages that uh, an air-launched missile does in terms of it's already at altitude, it's already at speed, and any remaining uh, power that it has on board, whether it be rockets or jets or whatever, is effectively a sustainer motor to keep it going to its target. So you get a much more much more efficient efficient use of, of your ammunition. But they can even make use of Venturi engines which once you've got the air already running through yeah pretty much kickstarted it you can make a sort of scramjet mm. that can be very very fuel efficient and hypersonic yeah and and also you you by firing it if you fire it with a nice elevation you get it nice and high up into the atmosphere where fuel efficiency is greater and air resistance is less especially if you get up to speed um now if you have invented said um missile launching railgun then if you want to keep up a good rate of fire you probably want more than one and again in, in the interest of energy efficiency you would want to fire them directly at your target um rather than having to point the entire ship towards the target because i mean VLS systems are, are well and good and there's plenty of advantages to having them but one of the notable weaknesses of the VLS system is it has to punch the missile up into the air then the missile has to turn in the direction you want it to go and then it goes off that that is one advantage that the old swing arm launchers actually have over the modern VLS so all of that goes well we've got a railgun we want to point at a target we want to point it up we probably want to protect the system somewhat so we have to put some kind of armored gun housing over the base at which point you've effectively reinvented the turret except now that it's a 20 or 24 inch gun turret you kind of you made a combination of admiral fisher and the uh, late 1930s japanese fleet planning designers exceptionally happy on whatever plane of reality they exist on um and if you've got this carrier that could or this large hull that can operate as a drone carrier without having to occupy the entire hull real estate um but you still need the width and the depth for the volume then you might as well stick a couple of these turrets on the front and you have a nice big missile magazine at the front which with the missiles say they're, they're slightly they're they could they could have a back. missile magazine and could also have a shell magazine because let's be mm. honest the same system could probably also fire shells as well as missiles yeah if you, have to. you can all think about what a 24 inch shell by emails might do to a target when it arrives but you've also got commonality of ammunition because if you're just using these compact missiles um as i say they're designed based they're effectively using the same paradigm as the air launch yeah at which point you can also put them on your drones so you can have a common magazine um 
as well as your um, air-to-air missile equipment for your drones, your sur surveillance equipment, target painting equipment, all that other stuff that you might want to stick on a drone. But you can effectively have uh, an aft section, as I say, maybe with uh, with two angled flight decks, starting on the stern, angling out either side, because you don't want the drones, if they overshoot, to slam into the back of your superstructure. Wasn't there a BAE design which was like this, which we're Similar. talking about now? Yeah. There Wasn't there a sea control show or something from the BAE? <laughs> Yeah. I, I Although think, that's probably I just given several of our American listeners a panic attack they're hearing the phrase sea control ship. I do apologize. Go but take your panic attack. But if you've got I believe that, there was a um, design for the for rebuilding the one of the Iowas like that, wasn't there? Um, mm, yeah, something else. Some, yes, for Harriers. With, with the Harriers, the ski ramps going yeah. up either side. Yeah. Yeah, but then because then you've got a cap, you've got a carrier. I mean, the hull's probably still going to be super carrier size. But you've got the ability to probably operate 70, 80, maybe more drones. You've got a mostly common magazine. Um, but then instead of making the hull a full length carrier and operating some unrealistic number like 250 drones, which history has proven it's just too difficult to manage that kind of air group off of one ship. You're instead using that forward space for a nice battery of effectively long range missile launchers. Um, so if you need to go full on dedicated strike, we need to hit the enemy as hard as possible. Um, and we're not necessarily sure that our drones will be survivable. You can just volley fire wave after wave after wave of, of missiles at them. Um, if and actually you, the same ship could be launching their drones at the same time. They can yeah. coordinate. So you think about it, the ship can coordinate everything internally, which really helps you with your strike security. Yeah. And, and if communications you... Package. <clears throat> And if you need to do air defense, you've got the drones on the back who can do the air defense um, job. And if you, yeah, if you want to do a combined strike, like you want to, uh, what was the American phrase? Kick the door in. You can send off a, a wave of massive, a massive wave of missiles from your from your forward launcher turrets, and you follow that up with your drone strike, carrying even more precision guided munitions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, and then you're, you're happy because the enemy's dealing with wave after wave of incoming cruise missiles and everything's exploding on fire and everyone's panicking. Um, meanwhile, with the heavily degraded enemy defences, income your drones able to survey the damage, work out what is and isn't on fire, what needs to be on fire, and ensure that everything you want to be on fire is on fire. And then the pyromaniac <laughs> who's sitting at the sitting back at the uh, on the bridge is an exceptionally happy man. <laughs> Or lady, mm. and at which point you also go, you also make sure that they do not have the control codes for the next set, so that they um, don't start spreading the fires more than they're supposed to. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say I, the, the 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 two women in my life that I know who are pyromaniacs, I'd be scared to give them the controls to a <laughs> anything like a yeah like our hybrid battleship. They would they would probably do an exceptionally good job of making sure that. Uh, the area formerly known as Target is now the world's largest vitrified glass crater. To be fair, I love my family. It, it's incredibly female-dominated, my family. I won't say quite how much, but let's put it this way. I am heavily outnumbered, and I love them all. But every time I hear the phrase that, you know, if women ruled the world, the world would be far more peaceful, I don't think the particular people who said that have ever met my family. Well, there was I that Roman phrase, they make a desert and they, and they call it peace. they are your friends, they are wonderful. But if you are their enemy, there is no one who bears a grudge far more than them. It's like, <laughs> I have, uh, it, it's like, I was once in a, a supermarket with one member of my family, a cousin, 
and she went, "Oh no, we can't go to that aisle. It's the it's the, that counter that checkout. It's the only one just empty." Why? Yeah, I don't like that girl. Why? <laughs> she 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 kicked my bag when we were in the when we were in. Okay, that's like two and a half decades ago, <laughs> and she probably didn't mean it at the time. And that's an empty checkout line. I want to go. No, we're going to go. Why? Well, I have I to mean, say though that I, would, I, I have to say though that putting you two in charge of mm. a defence budget would be equally scary. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I mean this is true. <laughs> um, look, the mask look, well, defense yeah, perimeter we would construct would be beautiful. Well, be I'll put it this way One of the most enduring images Actually out of sci-fi I don't know if you've ever read the Dark Empire comics A little bit, yes Okay, so have a look at afterwards It's one of the better known um, images But if you have a look at the, the Dark Empire comics For Star Wars There's this wonderful scene Because Luke Skywalker spends two out of the three comics Pretending to be on a Palpatine side On the dark side There's this wonderful scene I think it's in the first one. It might be in the second one where he's just sort of standing there. And obviously artistic superimposed, but he's basically just kind of going, oh, get the camera, sorry, kind of going like this, like to fly my pretties with fleets of superstar destroyers and world devastators and everything going out ahead of him. That is my perfect vision <laughs> for a defense budget where you, you could just stand on the bridge of your flagship and just gesture forward as an unstoppable steamroller. Just see, mine on. is a modified version of Star uh, of Stargate Atlantis. Uh, you know the Atlantis, city of Atlantis. I would like that city, but I would build it with massive shipyards as part of it, so I could fly around with millions of troops, occupy planets, and just churn out warships. And I could, if you cut, if you start to annoy me, I've got a wormhole drive that can get me away, but I can come back at my own choosing whenever I want. And goodness help you, because when I return, I will return tenfold, twentyfold. I think the, obviously the iron brew has been spiked. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, let's put it this way. I mean, the the poor old um, uh, minister, uh, director of air material. Um, Face, this is his response from the um, Director of Plans, dated April 1941. To build additional small carriers for service with the Battlefleet is in many ways the simpler solution. Yes. Mm. So, your Dreadnought Mark V, the Iron I Lady... more like the Dronaut, uh, the USS... Um, <laughs> the Iron Lady... Lonnie Johnson... Oh, that's a point. Um, you can have the Iron Duke and the Iron Lady sailing together. <laughs> oh, that would be a great pair. Uh, the, the Royal Navy's got to name cruisers now, the Iron Duke and the Iron Lady. But this is what we're going to have, Iron, HMS Iron Duke and HMS Iron Lady. So, these beasts of yours just needlessly complicated by any chance? Well, no! The, the, thing, the thing is, as I said, the, the, the only really viable semi-viable role for a hybrid carrier back in World War II was something that could provide immense amounts of strike power in World War II era, that being the battleship gun, but combine it with the flexibility and air defense potential of aircraft. That That is a theoretically viable role, but the technology and the use case 
wasn't there at the time, mainly because people are squishy. Yes. Um, whereas like that use case doesn't hasn't necessarily gone away. But if you can eliminate the squishy people problem, then you can actually build a ship that fills that role and actually is a useful and viable combatant because all of a sudden th that budget saving that everyone likes about not having to build a battleship and a carrier now doesn't have a massive red flag in front of it by saying the ship's going to be horrendously inefficient because even if you're operating a drone carrier you need your drone carrier to be of a certain length and a certain width and a certain depth <coughs> to actually fit a meaningful number of drones in because we know about the square cube and floor. and, and to, to build a ship carrying 24 inch guns is in the league of a super, super yamato Mm. So yeah. I think your yes, your budget but, considerations have just gone out the window. Well, yeah, yes, but, it's, but uh, those uh, are very good guns. <laughs> and also, Jamie, as the proponent of Cylons, so often <laughs> you are, I'm surprised you're so in favour of making adjustments for squishy organic bits, which are impure and going to corrupt your perfect think, vision. And because I you're not going to have, go on, sorry. That's okay. I was going to say that um, I think it's the organic brain behind. <laughs> This whole process that's part of the problem here but yeah if you, the thing is if you're going to i don't have, think it's drunk enough iron brew yet if you're going to have if you're going to have this unlike the super yamatas you don't have to have armor um particularly and that's a huge amount of weight so that means that the whole size itself can grow but so the point i was making was that you're going to need a certain cross-sectional area on a carrier even a drone carrier to have a concentration of drones or aircraft or indeed even for the magazines for missiles because if you make a ship that's half the size linearly um your your storage space drops by a factor of eight so you ideally the larger hull is the more efficient hull um and once you've got to that level that effectively the, the problem is that with a with a fully drone air complement the hull's cross-section that you need to make an efficient carrier will give you a ship that is far larger and can carry far more drones than is actually practicable for, for standard operations, which means that you either have to build smaller, less efficient ships, or you have to find something else to do with that real estate and <clears throat> bring back the hybrid concept to give you yourself significantly increased strike power, probably means that you can make a, a, a fully efficient use of the hull. Because... well. I think at this point, I want to say that given the Royal Navy's tradition here of fanciful sketch designs, we're going to have to put up on um, Dr. Clark's <clears throat> Discord channel a thread calling for sketch designs for um, Drax Iron Lady. Mm. Mm. Or the USS Lonnie Johnson. Mm. <laughs> you can pick. You can go. It can be HMS Iron Lady. Mm. USS Lonnie Johnson, and what would be the Australian one? Uh, Vegemite. Melbourne. Vegemite, <laughs> Hackaroo, Punch. Oh, no, I just thought of something. But if, we, if we're going to keep naming consistency across the Atlantic, re resurrect USS New Ironsides. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't use USS Newer Ironsides or USS, uh, <laughs> USS now 50% larger Ironsides, but you can go with New Ironsides. That still sounds quite good. Okay, so let's add a codicil to the pictures. How, how about you USS have to Iron front back and side? If you want to pick a name which is different from the ones we are suggesting, you have to explain why it's appropriate. 
So we have put forward USS Ironsides or USS Lonnie Johnson, HMS, HMS Iron Lady or HMS Iron Duke, HMS Melbourne or HMS Kangaroo Punch. Or Vegemite. Or Vegemite. There are three Australian options. And we'll, we'll leave it to, um, to the audience to, to decide the um, Canadian versions. Oh, yes. <laughs> in actual fact, in keeping, in keeping with the whole Marmite, Marmite Vegemite aspect of things, um, the Australian version could even have its two front turrets named Love and Hate. <laughs> well, I, I, was, I was also thinking that, you know, um, given the, the need for three ships of each class, you'll have Iron Lady, Iron Duke and Iron Brew. Ooh, yes. 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 Okay. I think and, we and might since, have to call... since, since they put a dragon on HMS Dragon, I, HM, and we pretty much know that visual camouflage is basically worthless in modern warfare when it comes to large scale ships, HMS Iron Brew can be painted a lovely shade of orange. Oh, yes. And she can, be ni- she can have 1901 vintage on tap. Mm. That will keep the crew happy and alert. <laughs> I. I think that um, the bilge pumps um, stated objective to create an atmosphere like that of the um, back room at the local bar has um, (laughs) has been met with this um, particular episode um, (laughs) to the point where people probably think we've had a very long session. (laughs) And now, Jamie, uh, as as the temporary DM of this particular. Chat, you must now roll 1d20 and work out how many sanity points you've lost as a result of having to listen to us for the last hour. Well, I love it. It, it, for Jamie at this point, it's quite late at night, so he has to go to bed with this going yeah. around his head. We no, have look, the rest I, of the day to return. Again, I, I, again, I blame all this. I blame all this on our science fiction deep dive into Battlestar Galactica. Let's yeah. face it. That's 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 what's led us down this um, wackaloon path, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this, this here is where we sought to um, determine whether or not uh, science fiction could actually provide a useful level of um, inspiration in those episodes. I think this one here, we have proven that uh, actually, no, science fiction might just be a little bit risky. <laughs> Particularly when I'm it not comes sure to if this is going to come up before the Navy Con or no, ne- after the Navy Con, so you know you might have seen them, you might not have seen those yet. So they might be to come, they might not be to come. But, but then again, lot. But, but then but then again, who knows? We might yet see some um, sketch designs coming out of the Admiralty. <laughs> well, if they if they're hiring yeah, on a contract basis, we are here. Yes. <laughs> well, we, I know we how can, to use AutoCAD. We can tell with the next generation Navy without too much trouble. Just give us a large supply of iron brew. And, and with that, note. I think it's a wrap. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for tolerating this particular bout of bilge. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>